All right, well, good morning. Today we are going to be continuing in our study through uh, Galatians. So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Go ahead and turn there. In the text today, um, as he continues to defend his own apostleship and the gospel that he proclaims, Paul tells the story of when he confronted Peter. Remember that Paul has already mentioned meeting with Peter and the other apostles. He met Peter a couple of times, and those, those earlier meetings with Peter and with James and with others certainly laid a foundation for this meeting that we, we see in the text today. As we've already seen, uh, Paul insisted that the gospel, the one true gospel is what mattered. That's evident in our text today, and so let's, let's read the text and then we'll work through it. Go ahead and stand and follow along as I read Galatians 2, beginning with verse 11 through verse 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we're desperate for you. We need your help. We want to be people who live according to your word, who reflect the goodness and glory of Jesus to those around us. And so we need your help even in approaching your word, Lord. Give us hearts that embrace you through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So I mentioned last week, most of us likely know what is coming in Galatians, particularly the rest of Galatians chapter 2. We might be anxious to get to those verses. They are glorious verses. Pete Hewling stopped me ahead of time because they're going to be gone next week, even mentioning when are you doing verse 20 because we get so excited about what's coming, and we should. It's important to know that these four verses that we're looking at today help us to understand the argument of the entire letter of Galatians and the meaning of verses 15 through 21. One of the main things we see in the text today is that Paul had the courage and boldness to rebuke Peter. And he demonstrates in the text that the gospel functioned as an authority over Peter. The gospel is greater than Peter. The gospel is greater than Paul. The gospel is greater than any human. Now, if you know me, I hate confrontation. And so, 
this text without the help of the Holy Spirit blows my mind. So let's get into it. Verse 11, but when Cephas, and that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul confronts Peter, the apostle. Peter, who walked with Jesus as a disciple day in and day out. Peter, who Jesus spoke directly to and said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That Peter. So let's acknowledge something immediately that we learn from the text. Everyone sins. Everyone. Even apostles sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Peter was in the wrong and Paul confronted him. Peter's so wrong that Paul says of him, he stood condemned. Now, is Paul saying that Peter isn't saved? That his salvation is jeopardized? Absolutely not. Peter's a brother in Christ, but he's in danger. He's walking in hypocrisy. Now, how was he in the wrong? Well, remember the story of Peter and Cornelius in the book of Acts in chapters 10 and 11 of Acts. That's where we learn about Cornelius. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision. He went up to pray, and it says that he got hungry and he wanted to eat. And while food was being prepared for him, he fell into a trance. He had a vision. The vision goes like this. The heavens opened and something like a sheet came down from heaven before Peter. And on this sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice came saying to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter replied, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, why Would Peter say that, especially knowing that it's the Lord that's speaking to him? Because of the law. In the law, there were commands given to Jewish people about what they could and could not eat. Those things, those animals and creatures were considered unclean. The Lord gave this command so that the people of Israel would be set apart from other nations, from other peoples. So there's a purpose to it. And so Peter, being a devout Jew, says, no way. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. I'm not going to start now. Maybe Peter thought it was a test, but the Lord replied to him in that vision and said, what God has made clean, do not call clean common. 
And that happened three times. And then this sheet is taken back up into heaven. Now, while Peter then is contemplating this, he's thinking through, what in the world is this? While he's still thinking through that, men from the house of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, come to Peter's home. And the Spirit tells Peter to get up and go with them immediately. And so he does. He goes to the house of Cornelius and he preaches the gospel there and they believe and they're saved. Now that is extraordinary. That's what any Jew would think. Impossible and amazing. Peter himself says to the house of Cornelius while he's preaching, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Amazing. That gives us insight into what is happening in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. Peter, in Acts 10 and 11, was radically changed. But something happened along the way. Verse 12. For, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Peter had been eating with the Gentiles since that vision. Fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Remember what table fellowship meant culturally. It's welcoming. It's affirming. It's closeness. So he'd been eating with Gentiles since the vision and occasion with Cornelius, and that's very, very good. That was the point of what the Lord's vision to him was. He was doing the right thing, the godly thing, the thing that Jesus would do and did do when he walked on earth. And what he called Peter to do. But Peter then decided to play it safe. Some people came from James, the same James that, that Paul mentioned already. And so they come. Now we don't know how James is involved in all of this, right? It doesn't tell us specifically, but we can assume that these people who come didn't come because James told them to go and make Peter stop associating with Gentiles. We can assume that because Paul doesn't address James. He addresses Peter. But these men come from James, and when they do, Peter, who had been eating with Gentiles, pulls back out of fear. He draws back from the Gentiles, separates himself from fellowship and association with the Gentile people. This is bad. The Jews 
banned being with Gentiles because Gentiles were considered to be idolaters. But Messiah, Jesus, had come. That was old news. The new news is Jesus has come. And the gospel is true. So there is a new reality, a new story has been written. The new creation in Christ had arrived and now there are only Jesus people. Not Gentiles and Jews. Now, Jesus had overcome that through His death and resurrection. Peter had been living in light of this gospel truth. He had been walking in the truth of the gospel. But because he was afraid at the coming of these men from James, he acted hypocritically. But he knew. Peter knew the truth. And yet he walked in hypocrisy. He felt the pressure of them being there and was afraid of their condemnation. And now the table that had served as a wonderful symbol of unity within the body of Christ, the table that invites all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, had become a table of separation, a table of exclusion. And Paul charges Peter as a hypocrite. Verse 13 and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is one of the reasons why it's so bad what Peter is doing. What happens when others see what Peter, the apostle, the rock, is doing? They follow. I mean, he's an apostle. Once the local Jewish followers of Jesus see Peter separating from the Gentile believers, they draw their conclusion, and they separate as well, and we're back to Egypt. How heartbreaking for those Gentile believers. Consider those Gentile believers. What a terrible situation. How they must have hurt. You look at the end of verse 13. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The son of encouragement was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, it says. You can feel the pain in that, especially for Paul. Barnabas, the one who had originally seen the grace of God working in Antioch, this multi-ethnic community of believers. Acts 11, 22 through 24 says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. 
And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then you know what Barnabas does in response to seeing that? The next two verses, Acts 11, 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. He knew. Barnabas knew and had experienced the grace of God in all nations, in all peoples. Barnabas had accompanied Paul in his journey to Cyprus and Galatia. He had seen the power of the gospel working there, changing lives, creating a church of non-Jewish believers. Paul and Barnabas had worked together, prayed together, suffered together. Barnabas had been there with Paul and faced angry crowds as well as excited crowds of new believers. Everything we read about, about Barnabas, to this point, is that he is a generous and good man. His name is given to him because of how encouraging he was. And yet, here, he is led astray by the actions of Peter and he separates himself from the Gentiles. It's heartbreaking and it's hypocritical. It's so important that we learn from this, that we lean into what's happening in this context. That a different ethnicity is being excluded from the grace of God. Obviously, we'll learn that even Peter and Barnabas are prone to wander. Prone to leave the truth of the gospel out of fear of others. Fear of what others will think or what they might do. John Piper, of speaking of this text, says this, I want us to look at Galatians 2, 11 through 16, and let the Scripture refine and increase our commitment to racial, racial and ethnic diversity and harmony for the glory of Christ. What I mean by a commitment to ethnic diversity and harmony is that it is a good and beautiful thing when Christians of different ethnic origins, not just black and white, but all of them, live and work and worship and relax and eat together in joyful, Christ-exalting peace. There may be situations where living with all one race is inevitable. If so, I don't condemn it. But there are solid, biblical, historical, and cultural reasons why ethnically diverse Christians living, working, worshiping, relaxing, and eating together is a good and beautiful thing and therefore worth pursuing. Fear. Fear will keep us 
from faithfulness in these areas. The Jews hated the Gentiles. Culturally, they hated it. Not just just from a theological perspective. They hated the Gentiles. It wasn't just the committed Jews. It was the nominal ones. The nominal ones hated the Jews. But Jesus changes things for us. And fear will keep us from faithfulness in this area. I think of, of those who, who wrote things so similar to what I just read from, from John Piper over the last years about the treatment of minorities, especially of black people, but of minorities and the church's treatment of minorities. And then, and then we're accused of being woke. And you know what they did? They pulled back out of fear. They changed their position out of fear. We are, we are all prone to this. We are all prone to be fearful. You can see that in the text. No one is immune. But we should strive for the harmony. I love Piper's words there. For the harmony that reflects the beauty of Christ and the gospel that we proclaim. Our value of gospel diversity as a church is for that very purpose. It says this, Revelation 7-9 tells us that God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and people group. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly good news for every person on earth. Knowing that God has sovereignly built Cornerstone in the community of Westerville, Ohio, our desire is that we would grow to reflect the racial ethnic, socioeconomic, and generational diversity of our city. We therefore commit to actively pursuing, engaging, and welcoming all people with the hope that our church body would reflect the beauty of this diversity. Paul continues in verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now here is the point. The point of what we just talked about and the point of Paul confronting Peter. Why did he confront Peter on this? Why was it a big deal that he wasn't eating with the Gentiles? Why was it a big deal that he pulled back from mingling with non-Jewish people? Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. We should notice that. Their conduct. Now, I will confess We are a words church. We love words. The gospel is the word 
of God. We love words because the gospel is truth that is proclaimed. It is announcement of Jesus, the crucified and risen one, as the Messiah and Lord. The good news that God sent His Son who lived the life that we could never live and then died as the sacrifice for our sins. The satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. Propitiation. That He was raised for our justification. The proof that God accepted His sacrifice and the promise that we too will be raised in Christ. That a new kingdom has been inaugurated in Christ and that we are invited to come in faith and that we will be redeemed forever because of Jesus. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's an announcement. But Paul says, your conduct, Peter, your conduct was not in step with the gospel. Your conduct was not in step with that. Peter had been in the Gentile lives. He had eaten with these Gentile believers' families. He probably held their children, laughed with them, rejoiced with them. He loved them. But out of fear, he pulled away. He separated himself from these people. And Paul says, your conduct is not in step with the gospel. In other words, we can learn here. There are certainly doctrines, truths that are in step with the truth of the gospel. But there's also conduct. There are actions that are or are not in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a way to live that says what I preach, what I proclaim, what I sing about Jesus, it's true. A way to live that affirms the truth of the gospel and by separating from these Gentiles, being unwilling to share a table with them, Peter was not walking in line with the gospel. He was telling a lie about the gospel and about God by how he's living. If a person is in Christ, then they are in Christ. And that is their identity. That is their identity now, no matter what their background was, what their ethnicity was, whatever. Their identity is now in Christ. I mentioned this a week or two ago. That's Ephesians 1. This is who you are. No matter what you were, this is who you are in Christ. Paul's saying that means they are family. And you don't act like that with family. 
They don't act like they're not your family. Paul says to Peter, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How? How can you possibly say to them that they need more to be saved than simply trusting in Christ who did everything? couple things before we, we finish this morning. First of all, as harsh as this is, we have evidence, although it's not from the immediate text, that Paul and Peter were unified following this. And that's good news, because that is walking in step with the gospel. This wasn't at all a severing of their relationship. Paul introduces Peter in 1 Corinthians without mentioning any problems with Peter's theology. In 1 Corinthians 15, he declares that he, Peter, and James proclaim the same gospel. Peter, in 2 Peter, speaks of Paul in an approving and affirming way. So at some point there is, likely immediate, but at some point there is reconciliation. There's there's repentance and reconciliation. Second, some of you may read this and, and, and wonder, like, is this right? Is this, like Paul says, he, he does this in front of all of these people. Like, he, he calls out Peter and says, you're condemned in front of all these people. Is that okay that Paul does that? In light of Jesus saying we ought to go to a person privately before taking it before other people in Matthew 18. I want to answer that cautiously. It is possible that because Peter's sin was so public, it was the right thing for Paul to confront it publicly. It's possible. It's also possible that Paul taught exactly what is right and true, but the way he went about it could have been less than right. We don't know. And again, we shouldn't cringe at that. This text is literally about an apostle who's wrong, who's doing the wrong thing. So we shouldn't cringe and say, oh, he said Paul might have done something wrong. No, we should never cringe at that. Jesus did nothing wrong. It's possible that that Paul is 100% right and true, but handles it in the wrong way. It's possible in light of how we're called to confront sin in Matthew 18, but we know that Paul loved Peter. And we trust that what we have here, which is not all of the story, is a reflection of the faithfulness through and through with Paul handling it. He's recounting a story here. So we don't have all of it. And lastly, fear. The fear of others is so dangerous. And so I want to ask you before we get to the Lord's Supper. Where are you feeling peer pressure in your life right now? Now, we're used to hearing that word as it relates to youth. Okay, adults, I'm talking to all of us. Where are you feeling 
peer pressure in your life right now? Where are you feeling peer pressure in the church? Not just locally, but maybe, but in the church, where are you feeling peer pressure? Now, there's a positive side of peer pressure, right? Which is called accountability. We all need that. But is there an area or areas where you are pulling back from faithfully walking in step with the truth of the gospel because you're afraid of what someone might say? Someone might call you. How you might be identified. Maybe that someone is a co-worker. Maybe that someone is a family member. Maybe that someone is a churchgoer. We ought to seek the Lord in those things. How will you pulling back from walking faithfully in step with the truth of the gospel affect others? Is there a Barnabas or others in your life that will follow your fear rather than your faithfulness? We're blessed to be invited to the table partake of the Lord's Supper. We do that week in and week out. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to I encourage you and caution you. And Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11 says we ought not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And In that context, he says that as often as we take the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the only way to take that in a worthy manner, the only way to take the bread and the cup in a worthy manner is to believe that. You can't, you can't proclaim the Lord's death in a worthy manner without believing it. And so I would encourage you, if you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're investigating these things Whatever it is, this is the one part of the service that, that I would encourage you not to fully participate. As people are dismissed to come and get the bread and the cup, these are symbols that we rejoice in. They're in symbols that the Lord has entrusted to us to partake of the bread, remembering that His body was literally broken, crushed for our sins. We take the cup remembering that His blood was literally poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, as people are dismissed, just sit there. And my encouragement, as I encourage so often, is rather than partaking in these symbols, these elements that represent something that's so much bigger, my encouragement for you would be partake of the real Jesus. That you would consider Jesus today. Jesus who gave his life so that you could be set free from the bondage of sin, so that you could walk in newness of life, so you could experience the freedom that only comes from Christ, so that you could live the rest of your life to give glory to the King of the universe. If you know him, I would remind you, we have a Savior who walked the hardest path for us. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. His body was broken, his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, as we come to the table today, let's come with a heart that welcomes others as family, just as we talked about last week. We come as family. And let's come seeking to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we love You and we thank You. We praise You, Lord. You're so gracious to us. You're so kind. We are unworthy servants. And Father, I thank You for the reminder that we have in this text of our fallenness. We're so prone to putting humans on pedestals, to looking at the people in the Bible, Peter, Paul, Moses, Elijah, as the heroes. Father, the story of the Bible is that there is one. Jesus, it's you. King of kings and Lord of lords, who willingly and joyfully made yourself nothing, taking the form of a servant and laying down your life for those who despised you, those who reject you. Father, help us. Help our unbelief. And help us to embrace the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And help us to be people who seek to live as a body, as a community of believers, displaying exactly how good Jesus is. And how beautiful His life and His call is. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.